And finally, uh, this evening, we have, he comes with 16 years of missions experience overseas in Muslim countries. And so this evening, he's going to share some of that experience that he's gained from that, and then just what it looks like to minister to Muslims. So we're excited to have here. Fantastic. Well, it is great to be with you here, and I think it's great that you're doing this series, Culture Matters. We didn't, I didn't have the, the slide to show you, but you guys have been talking about culture and contemporary issues in our culture that we need to engage. And uh, our topic tonight is a fun one, right? We're talking about Islam. And I want to put a symbol. When you hear that word, Islam, and you see that symbol, be honest. What kind of feeling do you get inside? Do you feel, maybe you don't feel anything at all. (laughs) But I think if we're honest, most of us, at least at at some level, might tighten up a bit. We might get a little sense of fear, like Islam. And honestly, it's difficult to, to hear the word Islam or to see that symbol and not be reminded of terrorism in the world, not be reminded of 9-11. I have the unfortunate privilege of being bored on September 11th. I said bored. Born on September 11th. Anybody else here have a September 11th birthday? One of you? September 11th. All right. So you know what that was like. You were turning, what, seven, eight, nine? How old were you? Nine. You'll probably never forget that. My daughter was also born on September 11th, and she was having her birthday. Fortunately, we were in Pakistan about 12 hours ahead, and so she'd already gone to bed, celebrated her birthday before CNN came on that night. My wife realized what was happening back here. And honestly, it was a lot better to experience 9-11 over there than it was here. But I know that every single one of you remember exactly where you were on that day. I was in Germany actually greeting a team from GBC that was going to Pakistan. And we were all there together when this happened. And unfortunately, because there were so many unknowns at the time, we needed to reroute them to East Asia. But I'll never forget that day. And um, we keep the TV off on our birthday, so I don't know about you, but uh, not not a great day to have the TV on. Um, But... The question is, so we have these feelings, we have these associations. What we want to ask tonight is, what would the Lord have us feel when we hear the word Islam or hear the word Muslim or see this symbol? What would the Lord have us think about this issue, about this aspect of our lives? And what would the Lord have us do in response? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. How should we feel? How should we think? And what should we do? And let me uh, just ask the Lord to guide us in in thinking through those three things as we look at his word, okay? God, I I do pray that you um, you would change our feelings. You would change our thoughts, our associations with this particular issue. You know how we feel. You know what comes to mind and what comes to our hearts. And um, we would ask that we would feel what you feel, that we would think how you think, and we would do what you would have us do in response. So do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've, as I've prayed this prayer for myself, and I've thought about that, I think that the, the one thing that stands out the most to me 
is the life of the Apostle Paul and what God called him to do. It's interesting, we don't have uh, many opportunities to see Jesus crossing culture, Jesus engaging other cultures outside of his Judaic world that he lived in. There's the one example of the, of the Samaritan, the woman at the well, but that's about it. Paul, on the other hand, we have, we have a lot more to go on. And while Islam didn't exist at the time that uh, Paul was alive and, and ministering and writing his epistles, this is the passage that, that, I, that I think of the most. It's in 1 Corinthians. I, th- I think I've got it up. Here it is. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save some. There's obvious limitations to what we can do in becoming all things to all people. Even for Paul, there were limitations to that. But what I think we see uh, exemplified in these words of Paul is the tremendous empathy he had towards people of other groups, of the groupings, cultures. And he had incredible empathy for them and reached out to them in incredible ways. And we're going to look at one example of that. In, in a second here. I did not grow up in Texas. I grew up in, in Southern California. Grew up not knowing any Texans. And Texas was a foreign country to me until I joined staff with after graduating from college and showed up at their headquarters for, for training and, were, and was there with two, three hundred others from all over the country. And obviously there were, there were folks from Texas there. And, you know, but I kind of stayed with my, you know, California friends, and certainly as I, as I was kind of looking around at the, at the pretty girls in the room, I was uh, making sure that I was just noticing the ones from California. I had no intention of getting involved in a cross-cultural, long-distance relationship with anybody outside of California, but stuff happens, okay? Occupational hazards exist, and I fell in love with a beautiful Texan, and found myself, yeah, all right, <laughs> found myself less than two years later, my first time in Texas, sitting in the backyard of my uh, then-girlfriend's parents' patio, and uh, I don't know what we were talking about, but the, the round black thing that sits on three legs in the corner of the patio came up in our conversation. I referred to it, well, so that... I wanted to refer to it, and so that's the picture I have in my head. So I referred to it as the barbecue. And notice that the expression on my wife's face was rather strange, and I didn't quite understand what I had said, but she was like, no, that's a grill. I said, no, that's a barbecue. She says, no, barbecue is the stuff we cook inside the grill. I'm like, no. The grill is the thing inside the barbecue that you cook the food on. It's the thing, you know, it's got silver bars up and down it. And look, if you take it out and stick it, hold it next to your car, do you see how well it matches the grill in your car? This is the grill. So a silly conversation ensues. Of course, I was right. (laughs) 
She goes, no, it's the food. I mean, you what? I mean, you, the hamburgers and the hot dogs? She goes, no, not hamburgers and hot dogs, brisket. I'm like, what's brisket? I didn't even know what brisket was. The point is that if I want to communicate, now that I live in Texas, I don't insist on trying to convince every one of my people I try to communicate with that they're using the wrong word, right? If I want this picture to come up in another person's head that I'm talking to, I have to adapt what I say, right? So I actually have adapted cross-culturally and now use the word grill despite the wrongness of all of that. (laughs) But this is the picture that still pops up in my head when I use the term grill, all right? I was born in California, raised in California. How could, I, I don't know, I'm having trouble changing that. Silly story, but there's actually maybe just as much confusion about the word Muslim as there is about the word barbecue. In fact, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you, and I'd like you to uh, tell that person your definition of the word Muslim. Like, how would you define what a Muslim is? Very quick, 30 seconds, go. All right. What's a Muslim? Anybody want to just yell, yell one out? Follower of Islam. Good. What does that mean, follower of Islam? What do you mean by that? A believer. Okay, great. That's, that works. Another one. Maybe a little different. You all have the same? All right. Homogenous group. Impressive. Yeah, I think I probably would have said the same thing, you know, asking me 20 years ago. Um, but what I've learned as I've t- actually talked to Muslims, is there's, a, there's a kind of a different way that they use that word. And sometimes I'm not always very comfortable with, with that. But the, the importance is what do they mean when they use the word Muslim when they're talking about themselves, right? And you've touched, this, is, this would be the first one you've touched on. A Muslim is someone who has a certain set of beliefs, a certain worldview, right? Uh, a religion. But what I've found is that there's lots of other ways people use this word. One of them would just be simply referring to a, a particular culture or particular traditions that a person might practice. And this can often be not necessarily connected with what they believe. You'll find a Muslim who is culturally a Muslim and they, they might practice traditions of a Muslim, but they don't believe what a Muslim is supposed to believe or maybe do everything a Muslim is supposed to do. That's kind of weird even gets broader than that, many Muslims are simply Muslims because it's a national identity. It's a stamp in their passport. It's a nationality that they're born with, okay? So the perfect example of this is a conversation I was having with a Kazakh one day. It was not unique, but this Kazakh said, you know, uh, I'm a Muslim, but I don't believe in God. Now, what I wanted to do was argue with him, right? Well, you can't actually say that because, you know, a Muslim is supposed to believe these five things. And da, 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 da. That would have not been a, that would have been about as productive as trying to convince my wife that she has the wrong definition of barbecue, right? Instead, what I needed to do was empathize and seek to understand what it is he meant when he said, I'm a Muslim, but I don't believe in God. Here's what I think he meant. I'm a Kazakh. They're synonymous. To be Kazakh as, an, as a nationality is to be Muslim. And if I was going to believe in God, I don't think I'd believe in your God. I think I would believe in our God. Okay, so you get this your God, our God thing too. If you were to draw these related uh, to each other, just in case you're curious, this is kind of how I see it. 
they don't necessarily overlap. They can overlap, but you've got you know, this broader Muslim world of people who are simply Muslim by way of their, their nationality or the family they were born into. So it gets rather complex when you're talking about the Muslim world. What exactly do you mean? We don't necessarily mean someone who believes certain things and does certain things. There's a much broader spectrum out there. Where did the Muslim terrorists fit in? This is not drawn to scale. If it was, I would draw this a lot more narrow, but I think they overlap with all three. But it's a very, very small minority. Fundamental Muslims who would, who would commit an act of terrorism or empathize with terrorism is a very, very small piece of the population. The most Muslims that I've met are incredibly gracious people, love Americans, and would wish no harm, and are absolutely ashamed about what, what uh, happens in acts of terrorism. All right, let's take another term. By the way, we intuitively get this when we use the word Jew. We intuitively get that there's different facets of that word. There's, there's the religious dimension or faith dimension. There's a cultural dimension. But there's also a much broader dimension of simply race, right? So you can be a Jew and not be a practicing Jew or a believing Jew. Same way with Muslim. How about the word Christian? How does a Muslim understand the word Christian? I mean, yeah, simply someone from America. Aren't all Americans Christians, you guys? The majority of Muslims would actually believe that. This is the Christian world, is it not? So we obviously have some work to do. How about the word Allah? How many of you heard that the Arabic word Allah actually has roots in the moon god. It's an it ancient pagan term for the moon god. How many of you heard that, really? How many? One, two, yeah. I, I'm not sure where this comes from. So few of you had. I've, I've actually, I keep hearing it. In fact, I heard it this last week in an interview with a Muslim convert to Christ. He was talking about this. He was from Iran, so he's not an Arabic speaker. But I scratch my head because I hear Christian teachers say this all the time and uh, wonder why they, no one has informed them yet that Christian Arabs in the Arabic world have been praying to Allah for centuries without any problem. They have a relationship with Allah through Christ. That's how they understand it. That's the, how they understand the word. So the issue isn't if something inherently wrong with this word. It's the concept of God that comes with it, right? The understanding of God. Well, see, Allah is, you know, represents a really bad understanding of God or warped understanding of God. Yeah, it does. So didn't yours before you knew Christ? Right? I wake up every day needing my concept of God readjusted with truth, right? We all need that. And if you actually take the word God in English and trace it back to its etymological roots, you find it's actually associated with a, uh, one, one idea is that it's associated with a burial mound, calling out from a burial mound. It's pretty pagan. Actually, if you look at etymology.org online, you look at the word Allah, it's actually much more uh, attached to the word Elohim, the Hebrew word for God used in the Old Testament. So anyway, it's just a silly argument. Okay, another little quick uh, feeling association. What do you feel when you see that symbol? Just shout it out. 
word association, feelings, when you see that symbol. Love, other feelings. Gratitude. Gratitude. Keep going. Hope. Yeah, so let me, I'm going to put another symbol up there, and I want you to kind of just yell out what, what comes to your mind, what you feel. Okay, you ready? Go. Okay, feelings. I'm looking for feelings. <laughs> Anger. Fear. Fear. Hate. Any others? Prejudice. Prejudice. Yeah. So when my wife and I uh, arrived on after nine years in we had a, a new people to learn and quickly realized that the number one issue, you know, if, if you're in a conversation with a, with a student, this issue will come up. Most important issue, most emotional issue is the fact that their neighbors to the West, the Armenians, have come in and occupied 20% of their, of their land. And in doing so, actually genocide was committed, whole villages were wiped out, the elderly and children were, were run over, and every year on TV you see gory pictures of the elderly and, and babies and toddlers completely um, mutilated. And it's, I mean, it's horrible, it's graphic, it's sickening, and it's in your face every year, and that's how they keep the memory alive of this injustice terrible injustice that's been done to them. Guess what was painted on every single one of those tanks that mowed down their villages? Guess what was painted on the uniforms of the soldiers of that army? That symbol right there. How do you take the message of Jesus, with whom we so so closely associate this symbol, to a people with such opposite associations and experience with that? It's difficult. It's challenging. So what would Paul do? I wanna, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts 17. If you don't, no big deal. I'm going to have uh, the highlights on the screen, and I can read a little bit. But Acts 17, to me, is a great example of the empathy that the Apostle Paul showed as he crossed cultures. Principles for taking the message of Jesus to a different culture a different people. He was in Athens, actually just waiting for, for Timothy and Silas there. And while he was waiting, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay? Bunch of idolaters. Now, Paul's a student of the Old Testament. I'm sure it would have been not out of the norm for him to, to take on the persona of Jeremiah or Isaiah and begin to condemn his uh, audience for the idolatry they were committing, point out how sick and disgusting it was to God. But look what he does and says. Look, look what he does instead. I'm sorry. I'm going to skip down to verse 22, where he actually gets to, we actually get to see a sermon he preaches on uh, Mars Hill. Gosh, I'm sorry. Here we go. He goes, men of Athens, this is, I'm skipping down to verse 22. It's on the screen if you need it. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What a contrast from Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or, you know, the prophets. 
what was Paul thinking? Why the contrast? What's the difference? Yeah, what's different about the audience? How is it different? I'm making you work for this. Exactly. Exactly. Paul's audience did not know any better. This is all they know. This is what they were born and raised in. They're entrenched in this stuff. They don't know any better. They don't have God's revelation yet. Okay, so Paul is very affirming, incredibly affirming to them, and actually even uses, uses their idolatry to transition to truth about God. So I think there's some great principles here. Uh, first and foremost, Paul is a, is a student, right? So while he's there, he's learning, he's picking up stuff, he's observing, and he already kind of has this unknown God idol picked out to be able to transition and, and communicate truth, okay? So that, I think that's an important principle. As we think about going to other peoples, as we think about relating with, with the Muslim world, we need to do that. We need to be good students and understand their world. And instead of condemning them for what they don't know, we can affirm what they, what they do do that's worthy of affirmation. If, you, if we go on to read, and we're going to skip down, let's see. Let's go down to, so he, he begins this incredible sermon about the God who made the world. Skip down to verse 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and then he quotes something from out of their own literature. If you have an ESV, you'll see it's kind of offset as a quote. In him, we live and move and have our being. So Paul's been such a good student of his audience, he's able to actually pull stuff out of their own literature, their own stuff. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so uh, a couple more principles here that I think are really important to, to uh, observe. He appeals to not only their mind, but he appeals to their heart. He makes those connections with things that existed in their world, in their culture. And he guides the conversation to Jesus. Jesus is the issue, all right? It's not religion. It's not even doctrine. I know that could sound contradictory, but it's a person. And I think it's interesting, too, that he is a little bit cryptic. In the same way Jesus was cryptic. And oftentimes our lead foot, it seems, when, we go, when we're talking to, to a Muslim, is to talk about Jesus being God. We want to make sure that's clear up front, or at least the Son of God, and you know, boom, and we're going to be talking about the doctrine. We might even bring in the Trinity. Why not? <laughs> you nev- that's never the lead foot of Jesus or the Apostle Paul, right? Jesus is actually frustratingly cryptic when he talks about himself. I'm waiting, looking in the Gospels, where is that time where he came out and just said, I'm God? He doesn't exactly do that. I wish he, sometimes I wish he did. 
He does it in lots of other ways. He does it in the way he, he relates with people, in the authority he claims. He forgives sins. He teaches as one with authority. He claims this very unique relationship with the Father. And so when you put it all together, you go, yeah, there's no other way for this to work for, other than for him to be God. That's how we need to work with our Muslim friends. Rather than our first foot being, hey, you know, Jesus is God, and that's, you know, if you're not going to buy that, that's where this conversation ends. We need to bring them into the life of Jesus. We need to let them experience what he taught, what he did, so they can see demonstrated that, yeah, he must be God. There's no other way to understand this, all right? And I think Paul's exemplifying that same principle there when he's talking about the man and doesn't even use his name. So he gets interrupted, so we don't know where the conversation was going. This is very interesting. A study was done on the top five reasons that Muslims change their mind, change to allegiance and faith in Christ. Okay, I had the word convert up there, but I think it's a loaded word. Anyway, but it was a very extensive survey. 750 respondents from 30 different countries and 50 different ethnic groups all throughout the Muslim world. It's fascinating. If you'd asked me, well, what do you think the, you know, the top five reasons Muslims are going to change to faith in Christ? You know, I'd say, well, I, you know, of course, it's, it's uh, evidence for the resurrection. It's uh, the historical reliability of the New Testament. And it's, uh, well, the obvious uh, you know, understanding of Trinity and the contradictions in the Quran. You know, that was kind of my default going in. Because that that's how I'm wired. You know, I need hard apologetics, evidence, right? I was really surprised and frustrated to find that none of those things made the top five. Okay, here they are. Number one. And this should be encouraging. That's why I'm sharing it with you. Seeing the lifestyle of the followers of Jesus was the number one reason Muslims changed their mind about Christ and change their allegiance to him, right? Why should I be surprised? Jesus said that, right? By this, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. And that's what they specifically refer to, love that followers of Jesus exhibit in their relationships with others and their treatment of women as equals. The number one reason, okay? So as you're, if you're, as you're engaging in the in the Islamic world with Muslims, realize that this is the most, this is your strongest apologetic, okay? How you live your life, how you treat them, how you love them and those around you. Number two, seeing God's power in answered prayers and healing, seeing God show up, all right? And you've probably heard, it's uh, probably pretty widely known in a group like this about the dreams that Muslims are having about Jesus, Um, God is doing something special in the Muslim world right now. He's revealing himself through dreams. Jesus is showing up in people's dreams, saying, hey, I'm it, I'm Jesus. Not everybody gets a dream, but um, God is finding it important to to reveal himself to a few select people in the Muslim world right now. And it's, you know, how do you explain that other than God showing up? Uh, But I think we could boldly pray for God to do that more and for God to do that to the for the Muslims that we meet, why not pray for that? Why not pray with our Muslim friends when they're having a problem or is sick and see how God shows up? Not be afraid of maybe God not answering, but being bold. 
Uh, this is number three, and, I, and I, I'm going to say this with a qualifier. So the, t- the third reason they, they noted was that they were dissatisfied with the type of religion they had experienced, specifically the Quran and how it emphasizes God's punishment over his love, religious militancy, and the failure of religious law to transform society. Yeah, now here's, here's the one I have to really uh, qualify. You can't do this yourself. So it is, it is highly unproductive to ever draw attention to anything negative about Islam with a person who calls himself a Muslim. Remember that for most Muslims, it's their identity, okay? So when you say something critical, valid as it might be, about Islam or the Quran or Muhammad, whatever it might be, they're going to they're going to they're going to feel it personally despite the validity that's how they're going to take it it's not going to feel good at all because you're an outsider however if you expose them to the real thing the counterfeit will become clear the counterfeit will be revealed okay they think they have the moral high ground and they have a pretty good argument right if christianity is the western world If America is a Christian country, they can point to our movies and TV. They can point to the pornographic industry. They can point point to our divorce rate and go, (laughs) see, Islam is true, right? That's obviously a warped understanding, but that's, that's what they're entrenched in. They think they have the moral high ground. They think they have, they don't know what they don't have. That's the problem. So as you expose your life to them as you expose them to who Christ is in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, which is part of their scripture. If you expose them to real Christian community, they will begin to see that what they have maybe doesn't match up. And that's when they'll start feeling the dissatisfaction. But it has to be indirect on your part. Make sense? All right, number four, uh, this reading the spiritual truth in the Bible, I just alluded to that. It became compelling for them and the key to their understanding of God's character. So seeing God expressed in the Old and New Testament, which they may have never read despite it being part of their scripture. Um, And very similar to that, experiencing the scriptural teachings about God's love was also a big deal. Specifically, expressed through the life and teachings of Jesus. Those are the reasons why Muslims change their mind. All right, so um, I just wanted to throw a few things out. I, I believe it's, it's only a matter of time, sorry, before, um, if, you, if you're not already engaging with Muslims, if you're not already coming across them in your life, it's only a matter of time. And God might even choose to, or, or lead you to go specifically, and to actually take initiative and make friends with Muslims, whether it's here or it's somewhere on the other side of the ocean. Uh, It's a lot less scary than you think. It's a lot less scary than you've been led to believe. Muslims are very anxious to meet Americans, whether it's here or there. We have a lot living in Cold Station that may have never been approached by someone who's who's local here and, and invited to their home or invited to do something. Um, hospitality, actually we're pretty bad at it. When you start traveling to the Muslim world, you realize that they are much more hospitable than we are. 
And so they're always kind of scratching their head when they visit our country and don't get reached out to in the same way. But here's, here's some uh, words of advice. This is maybe the one I, I tried to, to harp on the most because it, it was something that was so hard for me to learn. I think it's just, uh, especially as, as guys, we, we tend to relate on the head level. You know? So it's all about doctrine, and it's about theology, and it's about apologetics. That is just not all that convincing or productive or helpful uh, when you're talking to a Muslim. That it's much better to relate from the heart rather than your head. And so I would just say, you know, forsake the apologetics approach. Most of the stuff out there that you read on relating to Muslims tends to be heavy on apologetics. I don't think that's really helpful. Um, And I, I just haven't seen that. Don't give facts. Don't talk about the gospel without its relevance to you, its, its meaning in your life, how the gospel has changed you. So don't talk about things outside of you. Talk about your experience of them. That's a, that's a one way of relating on a heart level. Talk about your relationship with God. Share how scripture is impacting you. Talking about what you read that morning and the conversation you're having with God today as a result is much more meaningful for a Muslim than hearing another fact about the Bible or a fact about Jesus without any context. Does that make sense? So uh, try to make that shift. It's taken me a long time. For when you can't, just really try to refrain from speaking negatively about Islam. Again, it's, it, uh, it's tied to their identity. Don't argue, debate respond with love. Don't be discouraged by intellectual disagreement. Met this guy. He was actually hard to even spend much time with because he was just kind of a little obnoxious. Something about him kept drawing him to us and and us to him and, and me to him. We had this funny friendship and but he was always so negative honestly and he was never more negative when we were talking about Jesus or the New Testament, or my faith and beliefs. He was a hardcore Muslim. He didn't just call himself a Muslim by way of culture identity. He believed in a lot of what a Muslim was supposed to believe. Had a friendship with him for a long time, and then, bam, he decides he's going to put his faith in Jesus. And I was shocked. I'm like, what about all those intellectual problems you had with the reliability of the New Testament and, and who Jesus is? And he goes, Ah, that's literally what he did. He was, ah. In other words, it wasn't all that important. It wasn't as important as I led you to believe. He started to experience God in us, through us, in his word, and that's what changed his mind. Not all of our apologetics and evidence. and It was amazing. So don't be discouraged by that because they'll turn on a dime. You can use heart check questions. If you, you know, if I could convince you, would you believe? Do be familiar with the historical reliability of the New Testament because that will be challenged, at least why you trust it. But always guide the conversation back to Jesus. He is the issue, right? Jesus is the issue. Not religion. It's Jesus. And instead of quoting scripture, talking about Jesus, get them in it. Show it to them. Get them reading it, especially go- the Gospels. Like, alluded to, like I alluded to earlier, let them experience Christ's claims as he made them 
in the context of his deeds, what he did, and his words, his teaching, the things he taught. That's really important. Let the narratives teach the doctrine. Don't let doctrine be your lead foot. You should not be having conversations with Muslims about the Trinity. I'm sorry. (laughs) Shelve it. (laughs) All right? That's just a, a bad way to go. Do you understand the Trinity? I mean, come on, really. Do you really get it? We take it by faith because it's, it's all over the place. But we don't arrive at that until we see it all over the place. Let your Muslim friends see it first before you start talking about it, okay? You can't deny the Trinity because it's, it's, it's here and it's there and there's no other way to do it, right? And so we came up with hundreds of years later our understanding of the Trinity. It's been our understanding all along. Don't get me wrong. But let your Muslim friends come to that conclusion the same way we have come to that conclusion, inductively. Make sense? All right. You can relate with a... Uh, I've found this helpful, you know, in light of their understanding of, of Islam and it being tied to culture and politics and the Christian world being the same way. I'll sometimes just draw circles. I say, look, you know, there's the Muslim world, there's the Christian world, there's the Jewish world, there's the Buddhist world. You know what? Jesus died for Muslims, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, everyone, so that we could be a part of God's kingdom. Now that just, I wouldn't have said that, you know, before my experience with Muslims. That would just, doesn't sound like it makes sense. Would Jesus die for Muslims and Christians? What do you mean by that? It just like, I blow gaskets. But to them, it makes sense. It means, I'm saying Jesus died for everyone. That he is above religion. Okay? He's above culture. He's the way to Allah. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to Allah but through me. That's what I found myself saying. Let them experience true Christian community. I already said this. By this day, we'll know you're my disciples. This is my favorite books. You can come up and ask me later. Let me pray for us. God, um, I'm so thankful that you revealed yourself to me. I was in desperate need of your grace and your truth. And without your revelation, without you intervening in my life, I would be lost. And that is just true for all of us. And so we're so grateful. And we so want, as you want, our Muslim friends and the Muslims that are not our friends who live very far away to know you because we know how great you are. We're fearful though. We, we're, we're confused. It seems scary. I pray that you would give us your heart of compassion, that we would feel as you feel, that we would think about them as you think about them, and that we would do whatever you ha- would have us to do in response. And Lord, I pray for, for those here who are going to be hearing a ton of different ways to respond, even this week, different opportunities. I pray that they would not be overwhelmed, but I pray you'd give them the strength and the boldness to make whatever the next step it is for them to make. Maybe it's, it's getting, in, uh, getting involved with bridges here at, uh, at A&M, a ministry for international students. Maybe it's to go on a, on a summer project and meeting Muslims there. Whatever it is, I, um, 
I pray that uh, you'd give them the strength and the courage to make that first step. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.